If you can open your Bibles to the passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're here to celebrate Good Friday this evening. At least I hope that's what we're all here to do. We want to remember what happened on a Friday 2,000 years ago when a man named Jesus was hung on a cross, crucified, executed in the worst possible way during the days of the Roman Empire. In fact, it's considered such a heinous form of punishment that the Roman authorities do not execute Roman citizens unless it is for extreme crimes such as high treason. In general, crucifixion was a penalty meant more for dangerous criminals, slaves, and, and those from foreign provinces. It was a way of asserting Roman authority and maintaining law and order, a generally effective weapon against resistance to Roman occupation. We like sometimes to compare that to the electric chair that we use today to execute our murderers and all. Yes, both crucifixion and the electric chair do their job. They kill. But I think that's where the similarity ends. You see, the electric chair is designed to bring about death in, a, in the most humane way possible. Death often comes quickly, within a few minutes. It is done in a private space. Few people are allowed to witness it. On the other hand, Roman crucifixion starts from a totally different premise. The objective is to inflict as much suffering as possible for as long as possible and for it to be witnessed by as many people as possible. Death was slow, painful, and hence the term excruciating in English, which literally means out of crucifying. It was gruesome, humiliating, and public. Those crucified are hung, there exposed to the elements, often already flogged, scourged, and bleeding, having only their wrist and their ankle to hold up the weight of the person being crucified. And then what happens is the body becomes too tired to lift up the lungs to take, take in air. So death is by exhaustion and asphyxiation. And death can take several hours or days to happen. Crucifixions are often done at busy thoroughfares. And this is because the Roman authorities want as many people to witness it as possible. It's their way of reminding everyone of the consequences for committing serious crimes. And so if you're one being crucified, or if your father or your brother, usually it's the males, is being crucified, this is a big deal. But at, at another level, Jesus' crucifixion is hardly unique. It's hard to tell, but certainly tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of criminals were crucified under the Roman rule. We know that on a single day in 71 BC, 6,000 people were crucified after the Spartacus rebellion was put down. And if that many people have been crucified, what is one more person being crucified? What's the big deal about this crucifixion of Jesus? Why is it so important that we, like many countries around the world today, would declare the public holiday to remember it? 
Well, we've just heard 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, being read, verses 14 to 21. What I'd like to do is to look at verses right now, 14 and 15, which essentially is a summary of the gospel message. And unpack these two verses using the other six verses in the passage. And from this passage, eight verses, I hope to address three questions on this Good Friday evening. Question one, what did God do through Christ? Question two, what do we become in Christ? And question three, what do we do for Christ? Let's dive right in. Our first question, what did God do through Christ? Look with me first at verses 14 and 15 of uh, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who lived might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's unpack this. If you look at the phrases in your handout, you see that I've boxed the three boxes there of uh, phrases in the two verses. And the first box there, one has died for all. And this is exactly what happened 2,000 years ago, the first Good Friday. And Paul says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all. And the one he's referring to, obviously, is none other than Jesus Christ, hung on the cross. He died. But not just the fact that he died. We are told that he died for all. Now, what does that mean? And what's so important about that? Well, helpfully, uh, Paul explains this in the subsequent verses. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And so our first question here is, what did God do through Christ? And the answer is, reconciliation. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Now, before I go further, friends, I just want to say this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian message. And if we don't get this right, we won't understand what Christianity is all about. I want to make two points here. The first point to note from verse 18 is the word reconciled. It's obviously a very important word because in this passage alone, we see appearing five times either the word reconciled or its related words. Two times in verse 18, reconciled and the ministry of reconciliation. Two times in verse 19, God was reconciling the message of reconciliation. And then verse 20, be reconciled to God. And what does it mean? to be reconciled. What is reconciliation? Jai Packer defines it this way. The general idea conveyed by the Greek root is that of change or exchange. And the regular meaning is that of a change of relations, an exchange of antagonism for amity, a turning of enmity into friendship. To reconcile means to bring together again persons who had previously fallen out to replace alienation, hostility, and opposition by a new relationship of favor, goodwill, and peace. And so to transform the attitude of the people reconciled towards each other and to set their mutual, subsequent mutual dealings on a wholly new footing. For Paul, reconciliation was the sum and substance of the gospel. Now, Reconciliation obviously presupposes that there's enmity between two parties, and in this case, God and humans. 
there's hostility. On our part, because of our sinfulness, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, that we are naturally alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And in Romans 8, 7, verse 7, Paul writes, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In our natural self, we are hostile to God. And our, we are hostile because in our natural self, we sin. We sin against God. But on the other hand, God is hostile towards us as well. You see, because of His holiness, the Bible tells us in Romans 1, 18, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, in His holiness, God cannot accept us in our sinful state because we are rebels and any king will not put up with rebels. How then can reconciliation be possible? Well, if you said something unkind to a friend, that's not true. Or if you gossiped about a friend, I know none of you do that, um, that's actually got no basis. You shouldn't be surprised, should you, if your friend is unhappy towards you, hostile towards you. And if there's hostility, how would you go about seeking reconciliation? Well, the simple answer is that the one who caused the offense, in this case that's you, is the one who seeks reconciliation. So we would expect you to go to your friend after realizing that you're wrong, to make amends and to seek reconciliation. Well, if it was me that you have offended, reconciliation is easy. Just say sorry, buy me a good meal at a 360 restaurant at the top of CN Tower, and that'll be done. But, on, but not the other way around. You see, we do not expect our friend, whom you have, your friend rather, whom you have offended, to come to you to make amends and to seek reconciliation. That's not what you expect today. And this is certainly not what you expect in the Greco-Roman culture 2,000 years ago. Which is why Paul's words are so astonishing. Verse 18, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. God, who was the offended party, took upon himself to reconcile us, the offending party, to himself. God, who was offended by us, came and offered forgiveness. He came to offer pardon, even without us first asking for it. And that's the surprise. And that's also our first point here. God took the initiative for reconciliation. God took the initiative for reconciliation. You see, the gospel is not reconcile yourself, an active verb. The gospel is be reconciled, a passive verb. You see that in verse 20. Passive because it is already done for us. We just have to receive it. Come and receive reconciliation from God. That's what Paul's saying. God is not asking you to do anything to get right with God. He's only asking you to receive His forgiveness, His pardon. And that's why the gospel is good news and not good advice. You're not being advised to do anything. You're not being advised to give money to the poor, to do community work, to donate blood, to work with the Salvation Army. There's nothing you can do. The gospel is just good news to let you know what God has already done. 
Which begs the question, how can God do that? How can He justifiably put aside His rightful wrath against sinful humans? Can He just, out of the kindness of His heart, write off all the wrongs that we have done, even for a serial killer, someone like Hitler? Can a just God do that? Well, the answer is back in verse 14. One died for all. Jesus died for all. You see, we deserve to die for our sins. And that's what Romans 6, 23 says. For the wages of sin is death. The price for our rebellion, for all the things that we did wrong, our hostility towards God is death. Eternal death. But Jesus died in our place. He became our substitute. He took the punishment that we should have. And this is a this is a big thing. The word that theologians use, the big word that we use for what Jesus did is substitutionary atonement. Jesus was like the Passover lamb that we heard read earlier on in Exodus chapter 12. You see, Pilate had ordered him to be flogged. He was scourged. And you can be sure his lacerated back would have been torn through, bleeding. And as he hung on the cross, his blood would have touched the post of the cross. And symbolically, just like the blood on the doorpost, the lintel of the Israelites' homes that we read earlier on in Exodus 12, God will pass over those who cling on to the cross. And only those who cling on to the cross, they will not die. Like the Passover lamb, Jesus took our place. And that's why Paul can write in verse 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. A just God was able not to count our trespasses against us because someone stood in our place and paid the price. But God didn't stop there. Look at verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now what does that mean? What does it mean for us to become the righteousness of God? Well, let me illustrate. For well, imagine for a moment that some thieves broke into crimson teas. Uh, I don't think that will happen, but assuming that's the case. And you don't know this, but each one of these paintings here costs about $20,000. And so you've got five paintings here, $100,000. And they took it all away and, and went off. But thanks to the efficiency of the Toronto Police Service, the thieves were very quickly caught. And the judge sentenced each one of them to five years in jail. So they had jail time. And so the thieves will go to jail to pay the penalty for their crime. And in a sense, that's what Jesus, our Passover lamb, did. It is a sacrifice that satisfies the penalty for sin, the punishment for the crime. And so Jesus paid for them through His blood on the cross. And because Jesus paid the penalty on our behalf, God did not count our trespasses against us. But that's not the full story. You see, because Philip still won't be happy. He wants his painting back. Right? He wants his pictures back. And really, it's only when the pictures are back that the matter is settled for Philip. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 21. For our sake, he made sin to him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
You see, God wants his picture back as well. He wants the image of himself whom he made humans in, but now marred in sin. He wants the image back. And in Jesus' righteous life that he lived on earth, for those of us who put our trust in him, we are now in him, in Christ. We now get that too. We get his righteousness. We get it imputed to us. And that's the idea of the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sins and paid a penalty for them. And in exchange, we took upon ourselves all of Jesus' righteousness when we are in him. And that's our second point here. Jesus' substitutionary death and his righteousness bring reconciliation with God. Jesus' substitutionary death and his righteousness bring reconciliation with God. And so Jesus not only took away the penalty for our sin, but he also gave us his righteousness. Now, that's why it's good news. Okay, that's the first question. What did God do through Christ? The answer, reconciliation. The second question, don't worry, the second and third question are a lot shorter. What do we become in Christ? Back to verses 14 and 15. Look at what happens when Jesus died for us. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who lived, that those who live. Essentially what's saying here is that we are told Jesus died that we might die, and he died that we might live. And what does Paul mean by that? Again, helpfully, Paul explains it in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's a verse well, uh, worth memorizing. It's one of the uh, first verses that I memorized when I first became a Christian. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. In the Old Testament, God promised through the prophet Ezekiel, and this is in Ezekiel chapter 36, that there will be a day when, and I'll, let me read that for you. Ezekiel chapter 36, from verse 25. He says, I will, There will be a day when I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the old, our uncleanness, our idols and our heart of stone these are all dead. They have passed away. The new, a new heart, a new spirit, a heart of flesh, they're now in us. And so we don't merely have a heart that's been repaired or been made right. We get a whole new heart. In fact, we are a new creation. Christ died in order that our old self may die. And Christ died so that our new self can live. And because we are a new creation, we can expect that one of the key changes that we will have in our life would be a new outlook. And Paul writes in verse 16, From now on, therefore, regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. You see, we no longer see people the way we used to see them. 
we look at them differently. As C.S. Lewis reminded us, when we become Christians, we realize that there are no ordinary people. We have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and, and their lives, their life is to ours as the life of a net. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. One or the other. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's what all humans are. One or the other. And we certainly don't see Christ the way that we used to see Him, previously seen Him. In fact, being a new creation, being part of God's family, changes the way we see everything. Our perspective of the world, of what's important, is totally changed. And again, C.S. Lewis puts it well. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the Son has reason. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. We see everything now in the light of a God who loved us so much that He would send His Son to die on a cross for us. Something fundamental changed on that first Good Friday. And because of that, we can now become a new creation. And for those of us who've put our trust in Jesus, we are a new creation. We are life. And so let's start truly living. But what does that look like? Which brings us to our third question. What do we do for Christ? If we are in Christ, we are a new creation, that's our identity, that's who we are. The question next is, what do we do? What's our role in the kingdom of God? Look with me at verse 15 again. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does it mean to live for Christ? As before, Paul elaborates what that means in the following verses. Look at verse 18. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. God was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You put all these three together and we get a pretty good sense of what Paul is telling the early believers. He's telling them that their ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling God with people. And their message, the message of reconciliation. What God has done through Christ for each one of them. What they become in Christ. Paul is telling the church in Corinth that they were entrusted with this message of reconciliation. And to illustrate his point, Paul says they were like the ambassadors in a country. You know, you know what ambassadors do? There are often these high-ranking officials from country A, often residing in country B, and representing the king or the head of state of country A in country B. They do not speak in their own name or, or act on their own authority. The message does not come from them. The message comes from the king that they represent. And in essence, Paul was telling the early Christians that their true king was Christ. They were representing Christ in the Roman Empire. And we know from history what kind of ambassadors these early Christians were. 
Christ suffered and died on the cross. And so for the early Christians, they expected suffering and they counted it a high honor to suffer for Christ. And many were bitten, beheaded, or burned at the stake. They were persecuted by the authorities because they refused to worship the Roman emperor by offering incense to him. Why? Because to do so was to acknowledge that the Roman emperor was God. And so they were thrown into the Colosseum for the entertainment of the rulers and their guests to be torn apart by wild beasts. And others were used as human torch to light up garden parties. And in those days, famine and war afflicted many parts of the empire. And in fact, we're told in the city of Caesarea, for instance, when a plague hit the city, this was in the 4th century, those who were able, they began fleeing the city for the safety in the countryside. But the Christians remained behind. And the bishop of Caesarea and a historian of the early church, his name was Eusebius, recorded these words during the plague. And I quote, All day long, some of them, these are the Christians, all day long, some of them tended to the dying and to their bearer, countless numbers with no one to care for them. And others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and distributed bread to them all. End quote. You see, these Christians in those days would help one another, often even to the point of sacrificing their own lives, even for the non-Christians. And their love and concern for all were obvious. They would continue to share the gospel, the message of reconciliation. In fact, a Christian historian would describe these Christians as gossiping the gospel to their neighbors or to their masters at home and at the marketplace. And so the net result of persecution, their good deeds, and their sharing of the gospel to all who would listen, the result of that is that the number of Christians increased, and so did their devotion and commitment to the faith. And so much so that within 300 years, the faith of a group of maybe about 120 disciples on the day of Pentecost grew to become the national religion of the entire Roman Empire. The ambassadors in the early years of Christianity represented their king, Christ, very well. Much has changed in the last 2,000 years, but much also remains the same. Today we continue to play the same role for Christ. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven, resident aliens here on earth. And what has also remained unchanged is our message from our king to the world. Look at verse 20. Our message to the world is, be reconciled to God. God continues to make his appeal to the world through us. Will we be faithful ambassadors delivering the message of our king here in 21st century Toronto? And what might that look like? I receive from time to time an update from a pastor in Montreal about what's going on in his church. And in his latest letter he wrote, There are few things more exciting than seeing someone come to faith in Christ. We got to see this happen recently 
with a young man who wrote to me regarding a significant turning point in his life. And he quoted this young man who said, The sermon have convinced me that I want to live like I truly believe the gospel. I want to learn how to evangelize because it doesn't matter how much of an introvert I am. I believe that God calls all Christians to make disciples. But the sermons have also troubled me because they reminded me of how easily these desires get tossed aside by the daily distractions and by me hiding behind the I'm too busy argument. I want to change and for once I'm willing to swallow my pride and ask for help. End quote. On this Good Friday, might that be your desire as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.